Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into our two of our daily three hour tour. I have told you we are um, we are going to be interviewing each and every candidate for attorney uh, general. It turns out as we're learning more and more, the Office of Attorney General in the state of Arizona has a a lot to it in its portfolio and a lot more than most people have thought up until recently. It is a delight for me to welcome to the show Andrew Gold for Attorney General. A, uh, excuse me, his website is Gould for A-G, G-O-U-L-D-F-O-R-A-G, Andy Gould for Attorney General, running for the Republican nomination to be our next Attorney General. Andy, Judge, welcome. Thank you, Seth. It's a pleasure to have you, sir, and it's an honor. I always do this with first-time guests, and I'll ask you the same. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, any autobiography you want, but, you know, ultimately how you came to be doing what you're doing and why you're doing it. Sure. Well, thank you, Seth. Um, I've been a lawyer for a little over 30 years now. Um, I, uh, I came to Arizona in 1990. Uh, I was very proud to be able to go to law school. Uh, my family had uh, very little money. I was able to make it through on a scholarship, and um, I, I started practicing here in Phoenix doing commercial litigation, and then I, I went down to Yuma, and I was a prosecutor on the border for many years, and then I served on the bench in different capacities. I was a Superior Court judge, a Court of Appeals judge, and then uh, most recently on the Arizona Supreme Court. I guess I would sum it up to say America is still the greatest country in the world because if a poor kid like me could make it all the way to the Arizona Supreme Court, um, then it's still a country of opportunity. I love stories like that because people need to be reminded of it. Who who put you on the various courts, Andy Gould? Three different governors, actually. Jane Hull appointed me to the Superior Court in um, 2001, and then Jan Brewer appointed me to the Court of Appeals in 2011, and then uh, Governor Ducey appointed me to the Supreme Court in 2016. And you left. The... So I'm, I'm proud of the fact. Uh, proud of the fact that it was three different Republican governors over 20 years. I, I can I can certainly appreciate that. You left the court to run for this office. I take it. I did. I did. I retired March 31st of this year, and um, I started campaigning in April. And Seth. Um, Hasn't been a dull moment. No, <laughs> I've been working very hard. <laughs> I can imagine. What part of the state are you uh, are you living in, or where where do you live? Well, I, you know, I was in, I was in Yuma for twenty two years. I'm in Peoria now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved up, when I got on the Supreme Court, it requires a lot more administrative duties, and my mother's health wasn't too good at the time. They lived in Peoria, so I moved uh, in a home about ten minutes from them. Uh, I, unlike Olive and uh, the one hundred and one in that area. Uh, Andy Gould, why would you leave such a great job on the Supreme Court of the state to run for attorney general? Well, I've been blessed. Um, I've had jobs that most lawyers, you know, could only dream about. And uh, I feel a tremendous obligation to give back and to serve. That's why I became a prosecutor. That's why I went on the bench. And Seth, these uh, attorney general positions, in my view, are the most important elected officials in the country. And Arizona, probably as much, if not more than any, they're on the front line of, of all the issues that are really facing the country, the biggest issues. When I have people ask me about my issues and the top issues, 
uh, in the country, they're AG issues. And I think we saw uh, during the Trump administration how some AGs were able to tie up President Trump's uh, immigration policies in court, and now how Republican AGs have pushed back against federal overreach. That's I'm I'm glad you brought that up. We're talking to Andy Gould, candidate for attorney general. Gould for AG dot com is his website. Website I always say F O R if that's accurate, and it is Gould F O R A G. Yeah, because sometimes people use the number four. I just want them to have the right thing. Um, I, I'm glad you put the you said it that way, Andy. Because, can I call you Andy? Because absolutely, thank you. Because there are offices that have power. There are offices that don't have a lot of power. There are offices that have power that isn't flexed. Um, the superintendent of education is one that doesn't have a lot of power. It doesn't. AG, it turns out, the attorney general's office in Arizona does. You want to talk a little bit about your views on certain issues and why, uh, why, they can't, why the office of attorney general is one you want to use to protect the things you talk about, the Constitution, immigration, life, Second Amendment, you name it. Absolutely. Well, um, most of the big issues of our time are won or lost in court. And when I I, I talk to people about the power of an AG, uh, think of it this way. Uh, If if you're concerned about an election integrity, um, a governor can lead and do certain things. But who's the state official that can go into court and get an injunction in federal court? It's the AG. And there's so many issues like that from vaccine mandates on down. Uh, there's a lot of issues uh, in this state. I think there are two primary ones, border security and election integrity. Okay. With border security, I've lived on the border. I've actually prosecuted cartels. I've had them threaten my family. I understand the border issue very well. You really do have to separate uh, border security from immigration law. And uh, what I would do as AG uh, is... I would institute a no trespassing zone in Arizona, a legal wall, if you will, where anybody entering the country, as soon as they step foot on private property or state land, they're arrested for trespass, breach of the peace, criminal damage. We have to set up uh, a legal wall in the state if the federal government won't enforce immigration law. And I'll tell you something. um, I've, I've been on the border where we've had Uh, strong policies like that over the years, they work. If we institute that with the AG supporting the sheriff, the local police, the local county attorneys, uh, in in a year or so, um, the cartels will stop sending illegal aliens through Arizona. That's what what will happen. Is your sense that they have have an invitation right now? They do. And and that's what, what we're talking about is sort of the reverse of what's happened now. So uh, President Biden has basically opened the border. Uh, when we see interviews of people in these various caravans, they say, that's why I'm coming. Well, we need to send a different message. Don't come to Arizona. They have a no trespassing zone. They have a legal wall, and they're going to arrest you, and you're going to go to jail. And if you have drugs or guns, you're going to go to prison. Don't go through the Arizona sectors. You're using, Andy Gould, a phrase that uh, maybe some in the audience aren't fully familiar with or are new to, legal wall. What is, what, what is that? Is that as opposed to a fed, federal, or what do you mean by legal wall? A legal wall versus a physical wall. Oh, so okay. President Trump okay. was trying to put up a physical wall. A legal wall is you hit this no trespassing zone, 
and we'll enforce the law. We're not going to have a period of or a, a, a place of chaos where the law isn't enforced. This is a legal wall that you hit on private and state land. Andy Gould is uh, our guest. He's a candidate for attorney general in the Republican primary. Gouldforag.com is his website. Andy, talk to me. Arizona has over the years tried to effectuate certain immigration policies, uh, based or illegal immigration policies uh, that 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 seem to conflict sometimes with federal law. We've been what, uh, struck and down on some of those. We have allowed uh, the Supreme Court, or at least the U.S. Supreme Court, has allowed some of those to go forward. It's stricken down others. Talk to me a little bit about the state federal. Can the AG sue the federal for not doing its job? Or give us a little bit of that landscape, if you don't mind, that legal state federal landscape on on illegal immigration. Well, um, Congress has authority over immigration law under Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. Um, states don't have authority over immigration laws. So uh, if you remember Senate Bill 1070. Yeah, that, that yeah was, that's one sticking uh, in my mind. Brought sure. it out of, yep. Yeah, of course. And, and so um, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down that law. That was a law that conferred upon um, local and state law enforcement authority to arrest for immigration laws and to prosecute for immigration laws. U.S. Supreme Court said, you don't have that authority, that's a congressional authority, and under the Supremacy Clause, we're going to strike it down. A portion of that did survive in terms of law enforcement could still detain upon reasonable suspicion of an immigration violation, but that's it. That's all that's left. So that's a federal issue. Federal immigration law has to be enforced by federal prosecutors and federal law enforcement. But that doesn't mean that states don't have the authority to protect their sovereignty. And by that, I mean state AGs, and you see this across the country, from immigration to the vaccine mandates, will go into federal court, have gone into federal court, and uh, sought injunctions to get the federal government to follow their own laws. Let me, let me, can I pause you? Can I pause you right there? I have a commercial, but can you stay another segment? Absolutely. All right, let me pause you right there. We're talking to Andy Gould. I want it because it's an important thought, and we get the commercial break that we gotta we got to take care of. GouldforAG.com if you want to learn more about Andy Gould. And he spells his last name G-O-U-L-D. And it's GouldforAG.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, our guest is Andy Gould, former Arizona Supreme Court Justice Candidate for Attorney General here in Arizona, part of our series interviewing candidates for Attorney General, GouldforAG.com, and he spelled his, spells his name G-O-U-L-D. Andy, right before the break, you were just kind of talking a little bit about, I, I don't know, conflict of laws might be too technical a phrase, but kind of the the diff, the, the, uh, the federal responsibility versus the state responsibility to actually enforce and solve our border problems. And you, as running for AG, are making the point that there's a lot in the in the in the toolbox that the state can do. Yes, there is. We we look so much to the federal government to solve our problems, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't continue to bring lawsuits to make the federal government do its job on the border. But we have to look to ourselves as well. In this great federalist system with the Tenth Amendment and state sovereignty, we have great authority and resources within the state. I've, I've 
looked at the border situation. I've lived on the border for many years. The federal government is inconsistent in how it deals with the border. And part of that is they don't live here. But when you live in Arizona, and especially in the border counties, it affects you directly. So we need to start taking ownership of that border more with our state authority and and use our state laws, our state resources, law enforcement um, to protect our citizens. Because the first order of any government official, any government really, they have to protect the physical safety of their citizens. Thank you for that, Andy. When you speak to various groups, what issue are you asked about most? Is it the border? Is it another issue? We just went through a debate on Roe v. Wade. I, I, it could be any number of things. Gun rights, you, you tell me. I'm curious. I always ask Ken. I'm always interested what the, what the Vox Populi is talking about. It's been two issues uh, nonstop, uh, border security and election integrity. Okay, good. Talk um, to, good. Yeah, I was going to say a word on that, would you, election integrity? Well, sure. Well, um, you know, I've done a lot of election cases over the years, and um, what I saw happen in this last cycle in 2020 was um, the idea that COVID uh, is, a, is a justification for wiping out all ballot restrictions, and, and I don't believe that to be the case. We should never be a government that governs by emergency. Um, that's, there's, historically, that's always been a bad thing in other countries. We don't want that here. Um, I, in terms of election integrity, I think people have to look very practically at some things. Um, Mark Brinovich did a great thing in setting up the election integrity unit, but uh, he, I don't think he anticipated back in 2019 that things would get to the level they are now. In short, it's too small. So one of the things I would do as AG would be expand that election integrity unit, which I think has one attorney, one investigator, one secretary, to probably 10 attorneys and eight investigators. It needs to have the capacity to go statewide and not only investigate any allegation of fraud, but to be strategic. There's things that you have to do to plan for elections, identify issues, and it's so important. There's a lot of things I could say about it, but the bottom line is this. The AG and an election integrity unit can do more to give people confidence or renew people's confidence in the integrity election process and probably any other office in the entire state. Thank you for that, Andy. Um, I'm not the most religious radio host in the world, but I will tell you I pray to God by the time the next election is over, we're not still dealing with these things. But in case we are, uh, where do you stand on on mandates for vaccines and masks for our youth, particularly requirements by school districts, school boards, or any other really public entity that requires as an admission into the school doors that you vaccinate your, your child under the age of 17? I mean, these are issues of personal choice, Seth. Uh, I, I get the ideas of uh, vaccines and public health and safety but, you know, we're talking about, in some of those instances, children, but anyone, um, forcing them to take a vaccine, an injection in the arm. We wouldn't tolerate that type of invasion of bodily integrity in the Fourth Amendment context in terms of searches and seizures. And I'm not sure why we're so, or some in our society are so quick to throw aside those protections with the vaccines. Look, these I can tell you unequivocally these national mandates, the OSHA mandate and the CMS mandate 
coming out of the White House, the president does not have the constitutional authority to issue those mandates. I'm not even sure Congress does. The state might, and under its police power, but even if it, even if the state were to try to exercise that authority, I think you have to be very careful about Fourth and Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment concerns, privacy, HIPAA. I, I, I just think if, if if the idea behind these these mandates is to just increase the number of people who have vaccines without thinking about the invasion of the bodily integrity and, pr- and personal rights of individuals, uh, th- that's an unbalanced way to look at the problem. Uh, Andy, how much, if I might, how much, if I might, do you find concern over Second Amendment rights? It's it's obviously something that comes and goes in waves, but it requires eternal vigilance because it tends to come and go in waves, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, it's interesting, the the, the Heller case from the Supreme Court, one of the problems is uh, federal circuit courts have essentially ignored it yeah. since it was issued. And so it's, it's a nonstop battle. And, uh, you know, there's obviously cases that have just been argued, but it's an express right. And it's a right of self-defense at its, at its core. But um, yearly there are new challenges to it. I've never seen an express constitutional right have to be defended so regularly as the Second Amendment. Last uh, couple minutes we have, Andy Gould. I appreciate your time with us. Uh, I didn't uh, I didn't even tell you we were going to go this long, so pre- appreciate it. Oh, I, I know it's pleasure. busy on the campaign ske- on the campaign schedule. But last one, I would I just if you could in the next minute or so, um, you, you have it on your website, and it's an issue particularly special to me, and that's the big tech censorship issue. What role can the AG play there? A very big role. There's. There's a couple things. There's obviously the antitrust authority that the AG has, but antitrust lawsuits are lengthy yeah. and expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we want on the Internet is, is competition, not censorship and monopolies. I think the censorship issue, the big tech issue from the AG's office, uh, needs to be primarily approached from a consumer protection standpoint. Access to these platforms and, and privacy of information, portability of, of, of uh, information. Uh, this is how we speak to each other now, is through the Internet. Yep. And, you know, if you can control what people say, you can control what people think. So. Perfect. Perfect. Andy Gould, thank you for your time. I know this is our first visit. It will not be our last. We have a long campaign ahead of us for people that want to learn more about you. GouldforAG.com, G-O-U-L-D-F-O-R-A-G.com. Have a good weekend, sir. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you, Seth. You take care. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Open line Friday. Anything on your mind? We'll be right back. I was giving actually a disquisition on this band last night, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Why only three of the four elements? We've talked about that before. I won't do it again now. Uh, But, uh, yeah, Earth, Wind, Fire. We're missing a big one. (laughs) Some some in the desert might. uh, I like to ask people, you know, how they go through life not knowing why their fourth element isn't mentioned. Just as I like to go through life asking people how they can go through life 
not knowing the names of bands they love. Ario Speedwagon is another one. We won't waste our we won't waste our time on that right now. We will, however, talk about something that is important. And again, this too, as I was saying with our previous guest, this too comes and goes um, as our attention comes and goes in waves. Crime, crime, violent crime, up, 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 especially in 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 our bigger cities. Uh, Phoenix is not immune. Uh, although many in Phoenix think we are, it's just by dint of the fact of we're being spread out and by dint of the fact that we have one newspaper in this entire state and it just doesn't focus on these things as much. But Jen Psaki, the president's uh, press secretary, the White House press secretary, said yesterday that COVID-19 was the root cause of the outbreak of crime plaguing this country. Peter Ducey asked the question, is there any other journalist at this point? I, I don't say that because I'm a huge fan of Fox. I just say it is, do you ever read an article about some interesting question any other reporter asks Biden or Saki? Really, ever? Ever? Peter Ducey asked, quote, yesterday, when a huge group of criminals organize themselves and they want to go loot a store, CVS and Nordstrom, Home Depot, till the shelves are clean, you think it's because of the pandemic? Saki said, I think a root cause in a lot of communities is the pandemic. Yes. How? How? Volumes and volumes and volumes have been written about crime. My favorite, I think, scholar on it are really maybe two. Ed Delatra, he's no longer with us. He was at Boston University for many years he takes a he may he may have been one of the originators in the modern school of thought on crime and policing but James Wilson James Q Wilson is the other one he co-authored the notion of the broken windows theory you familiar with the broken windows theory i don't want people to misunderstand what the broken windows theory is because it has two parts to it it's not just that you arrest people for what some others might consider petty theft or misdemeanors, breaking a window, throwing a rock, a ball, or an object through a window, jumping a public transportation turnstile, something like that. It's not just that you go after those guys or gals. It's got a hugely important philosophical underpinning to it, which is what does it say about a society and what crime will then become the new petty crime if you get used to, if you become inured to, if you tolerate things like broken windows and people who jump barricades or not so much an issue here as it is in other cities, even graffiti. What happens to a society that gets used to uh, that kind of, what's the word I want? Contumacy. That will be our word, contumacy. What kind of, what, what kind of a society do you get that becomes inure to those crimes? Well, what you get is bigger crimes that they then become used to. That's, that's, that's the philosophical underpinning to it. But there's a practical underpinning to it, the broken windows theory of James Wilson. And that's when you go after a lot of these considered petty thefts, you find 
more often than not, you're picking up people, you're arresting people, stopping people who have much larger crimes they are wanted for on their record or rap sheet or bail jump. I haven't seen the studies lately, but I remember seeing one that said that that, uh, from the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, out of would have been Massachusetts, U.S. Attorney's Office out of Massachusetts when I was back there then in those days that showed something like 70 percent of all misdemeanor arrests revealed felonies on those same arrestees. But let's get a little deeper into this, too, because this root cause notion, you want to talk root causes? We'll talk root causes. We'll be right back. 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I don't know how many um, – I know there's always some, but I just don't know – um, how many right now, how many candidates for public office are listening. But I would suggest to them, if they are, to consider when they talk about issues having to do with crime, issues having to do with policing, take a look at, think about, and then start talking about victims' rights as well. We're blessed, you know, I'm going to have a guy, he's the national scholar on it. We're blessed to have him in Arizona on victims' rights. He wrote the legal textbook on it. I'm going to have him come in and just do this for an hour. But it's a neglected conversation when we talk about crime and cops. We tend to talk about these things in the theoretical or in the abstract because a lot of us don't face crime on a regular basis or, in fact, some of us, you know, We'll never face it. Hopefully none of, no, no one in earshot or anyone will ever face it. But it is with us because we live in a world designed by – well, let me say a world inhabited by humans. I guess that would get me into less trouble. A world inhabited by humans. Can we agree on that and other living things? Uh, but, but in the abstract, you t- ever talk – you ever have the opportunity to talk with – a victim of a violent crime or any crime, really, any crime. It's the forgotten person in these discussions. You can listen to any political leader. Here's, here's, here's the test. A- any political leader, you can listen to talk about crime, talk about policing. And just to ask yourself, even if you're not running for office, gosh knows, if you're just you know like me, someone who consumes news or stories as an amateur – In any of those conversations, in any of those interviews, in any of those learned panels, how often have you heard talk about the victim? How often have you heard talk about the victim, the individual victim or the societal victim? Because there is obviously no crime without a criminal, but there's also no such thing as a criminal without a victim. I don't believe in victimless crimes. I don't believe in victimless crimes for a lot of time, for a lot of reasons, and we can go into them later if you want, or any time if you want. But even those crimes we all agree unanimously aren't victimless, violent crimes. Let's just say, for example, 
uh, or crimes of negligence with dangerous or lethal weapons. Whoever speaks on behalf of the victim, whoever speaks, you hear plenty of talk about Fourth Amendment rights and plenty of talk about Fifth Amendment rights. Well, you know what? I should correct myself. You used to hear plenty of talk about Fourth Amendment rights and Fifth Amendment rights. That talk stopped when it came to defendants with names like Manafort or when it came to defendants with names like Stone or when it came to defendants of any kind who worked on behalf of Donald J. Trump. The Fourth and Fifth Amendment concerns stopped quietly, didn't they? Isn't that interesting how that worked? But now that we're not in that moment, do you hear it again? Do you hear talk about the Fourth and Fifth Amendment? You do. And the criminal rights, that's who we're talking about, or the alleged criminal's rights, if you want, if that satisfies the equation. We're saturated with talk about criminals' rights, unless it's a Republican. Who's talking on behalf of the victim? When you hear things about restorative justice, and there are versions of it that I'm very much open to and even supportive of if it's done the right way and not done under the rubric of a lot of criminal justice reform, which is just plain nutty and creates more crime. Point of criminal justice reform should not be anything ever. The red light on that should be will it create more crime or not? We do operate in a society, I hope, I hope, that still understands every saint has a past and every sinner has a future and there can be redemption. And we live in a society, I hope, that there can be rehabilitation. Think about the word penitentiary. Where do you think that word comes from? Bill, you want to take a shot at it? Penitentiary, penitent. How good is our system at doing that? Not very. I heard Mike Gallagher, I think, uh, and some of our Salem hosts doing uh, a, a, a Christmas campaign for prison fellowship. I know prison fellowship well. I used to do some work on their behalf years ago, years and years ago. They do it the right way. They do it the right way. And people who go through those programs, in fact, do have significantly less recidivism rates. But let me not get off track. Let me just not get off track. When, when people talk about criminal justice reform, yes, there's need for reform everywhere. The question will lead to more criminality or less. That's the only question that should obtain in those discussions. And when we have discussions about crime, I want you to speak. I want you to ask people who aren't talking about it to talk about the victim. It's an interesting country, isn't it, that has spent more time and more volumes of words and books and learned seminars on criminal rights than victims' rights. It's an interesting concept of justice. Now, I think we care about all human beings and we reform where we can, obviously. But even before any concept of reform, any concept of it, How's the victim doing? Who cares, speaks up for, or on behalf of them? I've met, I don't want to say a lot, but I've met with several whose lives have been changed radically and physically have been confined to wheelchairs and harder 
impositions on their life as a result of criminality. Who talks about them, and why do we know criminals' names and not victims' names? Why is it the O.J. Simpson case? Why is it the O.J. Simpson case? Shouldn't it be his victims' names that we think about? Shouldn't it be the victims' We think about, of course, I understand State v. Simpson. I get that. We technically and legally do it that way because it is the state doing the prosecuting. But I think the victims deserve a lot more when we engage in all this talk about crime. I didn't get to the root causes. I will. I will in a moment. I want to take uh, – yeah, I'm crashing into a – yeah, let me – can I do this? Can I do Alan? Can I do Alan real quick? Sure. Alan, hi, Alan. How are you? I'm fine, Seth. How are you, man? Good. Uh, yeah, let me do this. Let me give you your full air on the other side of this break. Is that okay? Can I do it that way? Oh, absolutely. Stay absolutely. with me one more moment. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Alan in Phoenix. Hello, sir. Thanks for waiting. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, Seth, um... I don't live too far from the uh, juvenile detention facility, and it's really sad on Saturdays to see a lot of cars there because you know it's visiting day. And But that is where the city jails come from, Paul. That is where Florence comes from. We really have to get a hold of, uh, I call them the unspanked generation, um, really stopping it, you know. When it's, when it's in the adult world, when it's in the... the, the the emotional world, then you have different types of people, they're one-offs and whatever. Um, and I'm all for somebody to have to pay for an insurance policy to take care of somebody that you caused gravest physical harm to that's costing them the rest of your life. You should have to pay for that somehow. You know, you, there should be some sort of long-term responsibility based on the, the outcome of whatever your egregions were. Um, no argument so from me. That should actually be the meaning of restorative justice. That should be the meaning of restorative justice. Right? Yep. Victims are deprived of something. Victims are sometimes deprived of their life. They're sometimes deprived of their physical abilities. They're deprived of uh, economic uh, well-being. They're deprived of a whole whole heck of a lot of things. And I I think it should be the first step to any kind of uh, any kind of leniency, quite honestly. I you think know, it's the know, first have, step of any kind of penitence. Yeah, we have you know we have workman's comp. We should have some sort of insurance comp thing where where victims get access to some sort of insurance policy that is covered by whoever it is that committed the crime against them. You know, you have some sort of pool that actually maintains all this stuff, so it's not, so it's available to be to be accessed. Uh, there's all kinds of things that we can. There, there are, and 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 thank yes. you for that, Alan, and I appreciate that, and. One of the things that also has to be discussed in this discuss in, in the conversations about crime is the thing the left likes to talk about when it's on their terms. They don't like to talk about it when it's uncomfortable for their terms. But this issue of root causes—it's not poverty. Poverty is not a root cause of crime. In fact, you will notice if you read the studies, the serious studies on this that there's as much and possibly even more crime when the economy is doing well than when it isn't. Crime has nothing to do with economics. And for those of us that have parents or grandparents we knew, 
who lived through the Depression, you don't need a seminar at Harvard Law School to counterman what I'm saying. Ask them their stories. It's one of the most impoverished generations and yet also one of the most moral and law-abiding. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.